Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect anything different. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Lang Up Podcast. I'm Chris Solomon. Absolutely thrilled to have on the show today Jim Mackay, of course, better known as Bones. Bones, thank you so much for your time, for joining us. Thank you to the folks at Callaway to help make this happen. I know you just had double uh, knee replacement surgery. How are the knees treating you right now? Chris, uh, thanks. They're, they're doing pretty well. I uh, saw the doc today, and he's happy with where we're headed, and he actually uh, gave me the go-ahead today to start maybe even playing golf, which is, which is huge for me because, as we all know, this is a caddy golf season right now. <laughs> How many times a week do you play golf during the offseason? Uh, if I'm healthy, uh, my wife's nice enough to let me go out two or three times, and, and I love it. I've got a couple of caddy buddies here in town that play uh, where I do, and we just go out and we have a ball. And uh, actually saw Colt Nose yesterday out at the golf course, so I'm looking forward to getting out and maybe playing some golf with him too. So uh, I love to do it. So what is what does a typical week look like for you where you're not out on tour? And I know this time of year is probably a longer longer stretch of time where you get to stay at home or get to spend some time with your family. But uh, what is what does a typical week look like when you're not when you're not uh, toting the bag? You know, a lot of ta- you know uh, traveling, taking kids to and from school, uh, things like that. Um, uh, I live in Arizona, so this time of year, especially, the weather is really good. You know, so uh, very grateful for you know that time when I come home and, and the weather is kind of in the seventies and sixties, if you will. So that's nice. Um, you know, I, you know, I spend time obviously with my wife and my kids and, and have fun and try and stay stay in as good a shape as I can and just kind of decompress. But you know, I, I certainly don't lose sight of the fact that I'm very lucky to work for a guy like Phil, who certainly doesn't play. You know. A, a, doesn't have to play a ton of tournaments at this point in his career or ever because he's done so well. And so uh, I'm not probably as affected by the whole kind of grueling, you know, amount of the season as some guys are. Do you, you and Phil had to have planned to have surgery at the same time, right? I swear to you, we didn't. It was just a deal where I knew he had his thing going on and he certainly knew about mine. And uh, as we got late in the year, I think it was, we were in Napa. It was either at the Ryder Cup or Napa. And and I said, by the way, what what day are you having surgery? And he said, October 19th. And I, I swear to you, we were on the operating table at the same time. So it was just bizarre. <laughs> I mean, did you obviously play in this for your longest time off, though? I mean, are you at are you at any risk of not making it back out there for when Phil tees it up next? I, I hope not. I, I mean, it, certainly, I, I'd be I'd be nuts to say you know that there, that there is zero risk, but. Um, I'm in really good shape. I, I really did my homework. I feel with the doctor, and it, and it went well. And, and I'm really lucky because if we do indeed start at Palm Springs uh, the first week of the year, it couldn't be a better place to start for me because the, the courses are small, flat. The weather's typically pretty good, and playing with amateurs, the pace of play will be pretty slow, and that'll be uh, that'll give me an opportunity to keep up. So, what is? And I'm not sure how long you've been dealing with knee problems, but I'm curious as to what what courses stick out to you. As I'm, I imagine, somebody that's battling knee problems, you there's some courses where you're like, oh, this is this one's going to be a tough walk. But when, off the top of your head, what are some of the cor- the top courses you think of that you that Phil usually plays, where you're like, man, this is going to be tough on my knees. Yeah, you know, certainly you get a you get a course like Augusta, and, and that's you know incredibly hilly in places. But then again, that week you have so much adrenaline hmm. going through you, it, it doesn't affect you as much as it otherwise would. The funny thing is, 
it can actually not be hills in as much as it can be grasses. Like you get on Zoysia, like you may have in Memphis, where you just, you know, your foot gives a little bit as you step. And you don't get the kind of leverage that you normally do, and, and that that might catch up to you, you know, e- even more so than the hills will. Have you have you ever missed a tournament with Phil, or have you caddied every single one since he came at, became a professional? Yeah, I think I, I, there's there's been two tournaments where he's taken other people. He took his buddy Rob Mangini to, to Japan one year, uh, and he, his coach caddied for him in the 1992 Tucson Open. So you know, other than those two events, I've I've pretty much caddied and everything other than there's been i think two rounds where i've had one year at valderam in spain i had food poisoning just like you can't imagine and and, and it had no shot for a couple of days and he grabbed a local but uh i've uh, haven't missed too much work it's funny you mentioned uh rob mangini because uh my uncle is well, he was the best man at my uncle's wedding and i played golf with rob mangini at that wedding and i i beat Rob on that day and my <laughs> uncle made me promise he's like if you ever get a chance to meet Phil make sure you tell him that you beat Rob and I I did one day at the memorial and Phil Phil was signing for a bunch of people and his head just perked up immediately he's just I said well I beat just gotta let you know I beat Rob Mangini in golf and Phil's like well that's not very hard <laughs> exactly yeah it sounds like Phil yeah no but but it, I'm glad you've had a chance to mention that too because when I see Rob I'm gonna mention it myself <laughs> he probably won't even remember first he'll build deny it and i doubt he remembers it because it was it was okay. ten, it was uh, seven years ago or something like that but um I'm, I'm curious to hear what you what you think about how much has your job changed since cell phones have been allowed on golf courses oh my god what a question <laughs> you, you know that's that's an amazing question you just can't imagine i mean you know i hate the fact that you know you kind of have to police that out there i you know you, as a caddy you know, you're out there and you're thinking about the wind and the yardage and what club, you know, your guy's hitting. And then you start, you know, before you even want to, you have to kind of turn away from what's going on with your, your player and look around, you know, for, for cameras. And, and, and I get it, you know, to a degree that the folks want pictures and all that stuff, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's crazy. And, uh, um, you know, if hey, if everybody came out there and put their phone on silent, it would be a breeze. And, and Phil's great about it. He'll tell people as he's walking in between shots, "Hey, man, snap away! It's just please don't do it when I'm actually you know physically hitting the ball." Um, but yeah, to, to answer your question, it's it's changed things dramatically. And uh, you know, that being said, though, a lot of the tournaments, you know, the Memorial would be a perfect example, have become incredibly proficient at uh, helping the players out with this and, and you know, the, the people get their shots and, and the guys enjoy the golf. It's funny you mentioned the Memorial because I was actually there on the eighth tee box several years ago. I forget which year. I think it was 2012 when uh, Phil, had just I, he'd had enough. He had enough of the cell phones and you guys were talking over the shot and he came back to the bag and he said, I can't even focus right now. I, I think it was, was that 2012? I, you may not remember the year he withdrew yeah. after one round. It's a great. It's it's very very. It's probably right on. I know we were playing with Bubba and Ricky, and I and I think maybe Bubba had just won the Masters. I'm not sure, but obviously, you know, three of them of the most popular players in the game, and it it, it just got, you know, it, it it got a little nutty that day. But but as I said, I mean, I, I think I've said to the guy that the, the gentleman that runs that tournament, we've gone back the last year or two. They've done an amazing job of. Uh, Helping him out with that. I think I think they put extra security on Phil's group now because of that. I do remember seeing like extra extra guys with the mobile mobile device enforcements come sprinting up and warning right. people before Phil comes. That's what you get when you're as respected as Phil is. Uh, uh, 
when you when Phil's practicing, let's say you're not at a practice, not a practice round, an official tournament. How often are you there? Do you guys meet up ever during the off season for practice rounds, or are you is when he practices, is he totally on his own? Um, yeah, he's on his own. I'd say 99 percent of the time, he does his thing. You know, I like to give Phil as much space as I possibly can. He obviously sees so much of me during the year, and uh, the great thing about Phil is, I mean. Is you know he's doing it. He's in a, you know I'm amazed that at, at 46 you know that he, he wants it as bad as he did at 22. And you, I know he's working his butt off wherever he is, and is really really into it. And now we have this uh, really great relationship with uh, Andrew Getson, who's the guy that started teaching him you know before last year's uh, tournaments. And uh, Andrew lives here in, in Arizona, and he can just whip over and see Phil at, at the drop of a hat, and it, and it works out perfectly. So. Um, you know, if Phil ever wants me to do something with him, I'll do it. You know, certainly if he goes to majors to prepare or whatnot, I'll go with him if it works out. But uh, he, he's Phil's a guy actually that, that likes his privacy, and he's actually a guy that when he's warming up before tournaments on the tour, you know, he's he's not necessarily a guy that's going to put down his range balls next to a certain guy so it can be a you know a social occasion. I mean, he's kind of all business and all work, and if anything, he likes to kind of have his privacy so he can get things done. And do you caddy for him in like corporate events or outings or stuff like that, or is he pretty much on his own for those? Yeah, I've certainly been to a bunch over the years. I mean, it, it, you know, I would say you know maybe a third of the time. But you, I'm so lucky that you know because he represents these companies and they're great to me. You know, be it KPMG uh, companies like that over the years, that I become friends with folks that that, that, that run these companies and, and and run these outings. So I enjoy going and seeing. You know, John V. Meyer from KPMG, for example, he's just, you know, wonderful people. And, and so they're fun, and you, you meet some interesting people over the years. And one of the things I found being a caddy is these the relationships that you kind of forge over time, the people you come incredibly close to. It's not just, you know, caddies or players. It's, you know, businessmen or women that, that, you, that you meet at these outings or, or, or the like. Well, if you do see John V. Meyer anytime soon, can you give him a give him a uh, put a nice word for me for a raise for next year or something like that? So. I'm gonna text him as soon as we get off the phone. <laughs> Actually, don't tell him that I have a golf podcast outside oh, of my okay. normal job. So I don't want to gotcha. draw any attention to that. Um, gotcha. uh, so I, I I I find the dynamic just between your and Phil's relationship so interesting. Just because I find I find Phil such an interesting guy and can't. I can just only imagine some of the things that that he says during the round. So, I how how much does he talk during a round, and how much of it is just like crazy random theories about things that aren't even related to golf? I just want to know like what what kind of things he talks to you about during a round when he's not talking about golf. I mean, we talk about you know everything, you know politics, sports, movies, you name it, dinner, you know whatever it is, you know he's. You, 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 you know, you hit it on the head, Phil's, a, you know, he's a very kind of sociable guy and he likes to talk and, you know, you get these pairings out there and he'll talk to anybody about, you know, anything. And it's, it's great. And it, I like it because it keeps him loose and it's what well, it makes him comfortable and, and, and whatnot. But yeah, he's uh, the thing about Phil that I, that I figured out really early on is that he's got something akin to a photographic memory and you have to be really careful what you say to Phil because, <laughs> If you say something different than what you said originally, he'll say, wait a second, you know, three years, four months and 19 days ago, you said this. And uh, and so he, he, he'll call you on it. So he's, uh, he, he, you know, he's he likes to read and, and, and learn about things. So there's always something interesting to talk about. 
What is what's an what if you could think of one off the top of your head? What's the cockiest moment Phil's ever had between the ropes to you on a golf course? Oh, man. <laughs> oh man. Well, I mean, listen. He he's uh, you know he, he like a lot of those guys out there. I think that that have achieved a certain level of success. You know, he'll he'll basically you know he'll. I'll tell you this. What was he? We were at uh, actually at the Ryder Cup this year on Sunday. You know, we get out there and, you know, obviously the U.S. had a pretty big lead, but, you know, big leads have been lost before on Sunday at the Ryder Cup. And I don't need to tell you how much this Ryder Cup meant to the U.S. and how it was basically a must win. And so, you know, you're out there as a caddy and you're trying to kind of, you know, read your player as you get off the first tee and see how he's doing, you know, how he's handling the day and whatnot. And so basically I was talking to him you know, early in the round, just kind of, you know, you know, you're taking your player's temperature in a sense. And he just looked at me, he goes, hey, man, seriously, I got it. I don't need any coaching today. I don't need anything of you. I have hmm. flat out got it. And, you know, and that was the day he ultimately made 10 birdies and, and played as well as he did in the match against Sergio. So, you know, you know. There's probably a couple other things I could tell you over a beer, maybe that weren't on a podcast, <laughs> but that, that's all you're getting from me today. Say, I'll say, I'll cut this short then, if that's the case, and we'll just uh, <laughs> do all the offline stories you can. Uh, <laughs> you brought up the Ryder Cup in that particular match, and there's something I wanted to ask you about that. I found your, re- I think I've replayed that that final putt that Phil made on the 18th green about five or six times, and I, I I find myself not necessarily watching him after it and watching your reaction to it because. There was a great, a big pause from you, and then you just let out a ferocious, angry at the ground fist pump, <laughs> like a, just a true excitement. What, what? I mean, I know that you were just elated for Phil in that moment, but it felt like there was just like this build up and this. Uh, it felt like that meant something more to you than just like a normal celebration on the 18th green. So, is there anything to that? What was what was that feeling like for you? Yeah, there, there's there's a lot to that, and and I'll, I'll try and keep it short. But but the bottom line is. You go to these Ryder Cups, and and you know I've been fortunate enough to go to the last ten or eleven of them, and, <laughs> and they're amazing, amazing events. And you know we all want to win. The American golf public wants us to win, and we haven't been winning very much, you know. And you know certainly in the wake of the 2014 Ryder Cup, you know, ending the way it did in Scotland and ending the way it did at the press conference afterwards, you know, Phil put a lot on his own shoulders. And he took, he took, he, he kind of, you know, ran with the ball, and 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 I'm so glad that he did because a lot of things that desperately needed to be changed got changed and, and quickly, and and so you know, going into this year's Ryder Cup, in addition to the fact that we haven't been winning them, you know, I felt, I certainly felt the pressure that Phil had on him, if that makes sense, and so for you know him to play the way he did, he played pretty darn well the first two days. And then just to go out there on Sunday and to, to play that well under pressure and, and just to be in a match when you're playing a guy who's literally hitting it 305 yards down the middle of every single fairway and then make that putt on 18, I, I, I was really happy for him. I was really happy for the team. I was really happy for the, all the people that have been, you know, come up to us and say, geez, can we just win a Ryder Cup, you know? And, and, and things along those lines. So there was a lot that went into that week in that moment. Yeah, I found that very refre- that refreshing as a fan just because I know that uh, obviously catting for Phil, somebody who's made the second most money of all time on the PGA Tour, I would imagine 
your your monetary benefits of being a caddy are, are kind of uh, they're they're settled at least, and I think you, there's a lot more art to your craft, if I may say, and that you uh, you're invested in his success more than more so than you know just from a financial perspective, obviously. So I just I find that the the caddy's excitement level about the Ryder Cup and interest in the Ryder Cup so fascinating. And I remember reading somewhere where you said before you even had caddied for Phil, it, it kind of weighed into your decision to to move from, I think, Curtis Strange's bag to his bag, was you had a goal of caddying in the Ryder Cup, and you saw Phil as your ticket into uh, into caddying for the Ryder Cup. Am I remembering that right, first of all? Oh, yeah, that's exactly right. I was actually working for Scott Simpson that's at the right. time, but certainly working for Curtis a little bit, too. On He had a rotation of guys at the time, but you're 100% right. My, you know, and, and listen, you know, as you know, the, the caddy turnover rate is incredible. So I'm thinking, well, if I go to work for Phil Mickelson here, I have this opportunity, but boy, I hope I could hang in there for a year or two because, you know, statistically, you're just not going to last that long. And they've always said that you never want to be a great player's first caddy because typically they're always going to make a change at some point, mm. you know, and find somebody else out there they'd rather work with. But, but yeah, my thinking at the time was, my gosh, I don't know how long I'm going to caddy and keep my head above water out here. So my only goal as a caddy is to caddy in one Ryder Cup, and, and, and the entire decision, you know, to a large degree went into that. Did it meet the hype once you finally got to do it, and now that you've done it ten times, is it, uh, does, it still, does it still give you the same kind of feeling? E- even more so. Wow. I mean, I, I don't know what it is. I mean, you know, it's just the most amazing experience, and I think, you know, Phil and probably other guys have said it in interviews that, you know, as you get to a certain point in your career, it's like these team events mean as much to you as anything just because – there's so much fun. There's so much kind of bonding. You have relationships with these guys you really wouldn't otherwise do for the most part. I mean, you see a side of folks that you aren't going to see, you know, in a good way. And, and it's just, it's incredible. And, and uh, I mean, this year, you know, with the whole Tiger thing and Tiger just taking the leadership role that he did and, you know, and, you know, and obviously what went on with Bubba, you know, and I know you, you know, the whole Bubba Ted thing that, you know, you, you know, when it, when it, when it turned out that Bubba was going to be a, an assistant captain on the team and he was up there and that was great. I admired him very much for doing it, but as caddies, we were like, well, where's Ted? You know what I mean? <laughs> so, you know, they got Ted on the next plane up there and, and, and they were a big part of it. So th- there was just a lot to this Ryder Cup. How many more, if you're to place a bet on it now and uh, how many more Ryder Cups do you think Phil has in him? Well, I tell you what, if you ask him about being a captain, he does not want to have that conversation right now. Do you know what I mean? I know what he, you mean. Because he does he he refuses to, you know, acknowledge that he's not going to be on, you know, the next team or the team after that and and I, I love it about him and 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 I hope it works out exactly the way he wants it to. So, you know, my gosh, you know, more than, you know, multiple is the answer to that, you know. Um, be it, you know, Paris, Wisconsin, you know, Rome, whatever. And obviously there's that, you know, Ryder Cup, you know, lurking at Bethpage there in about 24. And he's got those ties to that community and to that golf course. And, and, and that would be super cool, you know. But, but right now he is all about playing and doesn't even want to hear about it. So my dream of him being a playing captain in 24 is still alive, is what you're telling it's, me. It's definitely alive. Yes, yes. That's like my number one golf goal, I think, to see is, <laughs> is Phil be a playing captain, send himself out first. I can't wait for it. But. <laughs> send himself out first. <laughs> I'm going first. That's hilarious. 
Um, so you, you had just had mentioned when you got on Phil's bag, you weren't sure how, what the shelf life would be like or how long you'd be with him. Was there ever, and I think you, you probably got past a certain point where you stopped fearing this at any point, but was there ever a, a time where there was a moment of contention between you two where you felt like there's a possibility you may part ways or has the relationship been as, uh, been as awesome as it appears on TV? No, the relationship's been great. I mean, you know, like any other player in caddy, you know, we've had our moments, you know, but, but, but in a sense, that's part of being a caddy, you know, in, in my opinion, you know, the most important thing about being a caddy is not being afraid to disagree with your player and, and, and certainly not being afraid to have a different opinion than he does at a big moment. And um, so, you, you no, know, he's been great. I mean, you know, I didn't know Phil before really going to work for him. We'd met, you know, once or twice, but he didn't know me and I didn't know him. And, and you know, we went to see how this whole thing would go and unravel and, and it's been great. Um, but uh, no, I mean, you know, I'm very, very grateful for how he's treated me, how generous he is. And, you know, he, he's, he, he's a good guy to be around. One of my favorite stories, I'll tell you a quick story if I can. Oh, please. When, when that's, won, what, that's what you're here for. <laughs> okay. When he won the Masters in 04, you know, for his first major win, you know, big monkey off his back, whatever the case may be, you know, as a caddy, you know, they take him away and he goes and does, he talks to the press and he goes to dinner with the members and as a caddy, you don't see him for hours. I mean, I'm not off the clock yet. So I'm sitting there and I'm waiting until I can do what caddies ultimately do, which is to throw the clubs in the car, you know, say goodbye, great plan. And, and that's the end of your week. So there we are. He's won the masters, you know, it's six thirty on a Sunday evening and I don't see this guy for like three or four hours. So I'm sitting in this parking lot or near it outside the Augusta national clubhouse. And it must've been, geez, 10 o'clock. And I look out to his car and I see some figures. It's pitch black dark out there and, and it's Phil and there's two or three other people around him. So I walk there to kind of help out with packing the bag. And as I walk up to him, I see these guys are hugging Phil and they're not just hugging him. They're like, it's like an emotional hug. And as I get closer, I realize that I have no clue who these other two or three guys are. And I'm like, man, who are these guys hugging Phil that I don't know. I've been his caddy for quite a while now and I've got no clue who these guys are. Well, it turns out these are the guys that work in the lower locker room at Augusta National. Phil's been tipping all these years and taking such good care of. And now that Phil's won the Masters, he's going to the champion's locker room. And these guys are losing him forever, and they are just devastated. Wow. So they're hugging it out in the, in the, in the parking lot. I thought that's really cool. I, that kind of speaks for how he must have taken care of them over the years. And knowing Phil, he probably drops in there still from year to year, to year and oh, uh, yeah. still probably says hello to those guys. Absolutely. Um, one question, one random event that I want, I've always wanted to ask about uh, is the 2014 PGA Championship. Yeah. Phil was runner-up, uh, playing in the second-to-last group. Uh, darkness was approaching after some rain delays that morning, and there, the, the tournament just ended really, really awkwardly with Rory yes. basically playing three, playing up with you guys on the 18th hole. Afterwards, Phil was as reserved as I think he's capable of being, biting his tongue, yet kind of wanted everyone to know that he was not real pleased with what happened. Behind the scenes, was it a different different scenario? Was he quite? Was he? Uh, first of all, I don't think that I don't think what happened had an outcome on or effect on the outcome. But I can tell Phil wasn't too pleased with that. Would you agree with that? Um, I would agree with that. I would say. You know, I, I, I don't want to speak for Ricky, you know, Phil's playing partner, but I don't think anybody was particularly happy. I mean, you know, you, you, listen, 
Rory is the you know one of the great guys in the game, an absolutely phenomenal guy, and everybody loves him, us included. And and there was no question that when we got to the tee, and we had waited an uncomfortable amount of time waiting to hit our tee shot there in the fourth round because it's a reachable par five. You could see this storm coming in, and it's 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 a go- it's a goofy tee shot. It's from a very elevated tee with a water hazard on the right and this bunker on the left, and you know. We drove off the tee, and then Rory and whoever he was playing with, I think it might have been that Viesberger guy, um, came up on the tee behind us, and, and we, we kind of knew what was going to happen. And the two PGA of America club pro guys that were the rules officials in the groups, there was some kind of communication between them. And basically our guy says to, Rory, to, to, to Ricky and Phil, can Rory play through? Oh, excuse me, can Rory hit up? And they said, they said, absolutely. I mean, it was totally the gentlemanly thing to do. You knew that, you know, CBS, who I assume was, was telecast, they wanted it done Sunday night. The last thing anybody wants to do is to come back Monday morning, the volunteers, TV, anybody. So we were doing it. It was a nice thing to do for Rory. It was a nice thing to do for everybody. But what happened that was completely, you know, out of line was that, the rules official, or excuse, I shouldn't say, the, the club pro walking with our group took it upon himself to tell Rory he could also hit up on the second shot. Hmm. And and that's a completely different animal. I mean, at this point, we're trying to make eagle. I can't remember. We, Phil's maybe two shots back. I can't remember. Uh, you know, Rory hit a drive into a position where it was obvious he was, he was most likely not going to make a four. And so... Um, it was handled really, really badly by the official that, that walked through our walked with our group, and I thought that Phil and Ricky did an amazing job of uh, of kind of biting their tongues, especially when after the fact the guy I think threw Ricky under the bus and said, "Yeah, it was Ricky's idea to tell uh, to tell Roy to hit up," and that wasn't the case at all. Yeah, if anything, if I remember, I remember I think Phil made birdie, and I think Ricky missed a rather short putt that, I, if I remember right, cost him like around a quarter million dollars or something and like absolutely, that. Absolutely, you're right. He three sixty to five or six footer that cost him a ton of money, and uh, you know at that point I can't remember if you know if it was Ryder Cup points or what it was uh, because that was a Ryder Cup year I think, and you know there's a lot going into that, and and again. You know, for for the guy to take it upon himself to do that without consulting with the players, it just wasn't handled the right way. Hmm. Yeah, that, that, I mean, it sounds it sounds reasonable. Everything sounds reasonable there, except for that that rules official that kind of butted in when didn't need to be. I can understand Phil's uh, aggravation with the with the situation as well, and it, it could have been handled differently if they had handled the the tea times differently as well, and not tried to fit everything in the TV window. But that's 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 two years ago. But I was just always curious as to as to what Phil's reaction was to that. Uh, I'm curious as well. What is the most ridiculous situation where you've ever had to tend the pin? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh boy! Um, I tell you that one of the first times that Phil ever did it at the old International in Denver. I think it was the first time actually he ever asked me to tend the pin on a pitch shot, and we were playing with I think Faxon and Davis Love. And Phil was like short of these greenside bunkers and two on the 17th hole, and he asked me to go up there and tend it. And so, you know, Phil's kind of out of earshot. So as I'm going up to tend the flag, Faxon and Davis and their caddies are just giving it to me. You know, <laughs> and, you know, what are you going to do if he chunks it in the bunker? You know, and, all this stuff. and, and um, 
So that, and then of course Phil Holden. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I, I do. I, I remember that one specifically as being really fun. Actually, that was in 1993, I believe. And then of course the year that he did it at San Diego, that that kind of gets some airplay to this day. You know, he he asked me to go tend the flag, and I and I wasn't surprised because he was a he hits a lot of great pitch shots, and we all remember Charles Howell hitting that flag and going back in the water there several years before. So. He would, that kind of thought was in his mind, too. So he tells me to go up there and tend the flag. So I'm running up there. It was like a 75, 80-yard shot. And I'm tending the flag. And it occurs to me, given the position of the sun, that if I lose this ball in the sun and it comes down and hits me in the head, it's going to be like the biggest blue sports blooper of all time. <laughs> so I was over there choking my guts out about what, about picking this ball up as it sailed through the, through the clouds. And fortunately, I did, and it all worked out. But we've had some fun with that over the years. How, how much of it is practical, and how much of it is a little bit of showmanship in Phil? You know what? I'll tell you. It's at least 99% practical because okay. – if they had a, uh, if they kept a stat on the tour, he and I talk about this all the time. For the number of times a pin is hit inside, you know, 125 yards in the air, I take my man every single year against anybody, because he practices these shots incessantly at home, and he's really, really good at just kind of dialing up these yardages. So he hits a lot of flags, and uh, you know, one year at the Deutsche Bank on this 15th hole, he hit the, he hit. This, this certain front pin position that he hit this flag two years in a row from like 115 yards. And I remember he was just absolutely beside himself. So, you know, as we've seen over the years, I, I remember at Marion, um, Lee Westwood hitting one of those wicker baskets mm-hmm. on a wedge shot. And, and, you know, the ball went somewhere crazy. And I think he made double. I think he was in contention at the time. So those guys are so darn good. That's something you have to think about at times. What is, <clears throat> what is, uh, I mean, the, the, Phil U.S. Open narrative has been, you know, beaten over over the head for many many years, and it's probably it's not going to stop in, until he wins one or forever. It won't ever stop. But looking at the courses going forward with the U.S. Opens to be to be held, is there a particular course you think he'd be the most excited for? Uh, let's see. So we've got Aaron Hills next year, and I, I'd be lying. I don't I don't know anything about Aaron Hills. Um, it's. Uh, you know, other than it's in Wisconsin, and I hear there's not many places to stay. Uh, <laughs> the important things to you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, look, I mean, you tell me, going forward, what, where, where are the locations after that? Um, I'm pulling it up here to make sure I get it right, actually, because I'm not positive. I know 2019 is in Pebble. 2018 is Shinnecock. 2019 is Pebble. 2020 is Winged Foot. And then Torrey Pines, the country club, Los Angeles country club. Now we're getting up into 54-year-old Phil. So. <laughs> Well, certainly, you know, Shinnecock, I mean, he's, you know, one of the things that Phil's proved over over the years that he has, you know, he feels like he has mojo at certain courses. He goes there and just has a great feel. Phil played, you know, people ask me all the time about, you know, which, you know, oh my gosh, you know, what went down at Wingfoot must have been incredibly hard in terms of accepting the loss the way it all played out. And I tell people all the time, you know, it's it's not nearly as hard as when you play great and don't win. And mm-hmm. Phil played great at Shinnecock in 04 and uh, and lost to Goosen. Um, I'll never forget that 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 day, you know, Phil lost. Um, he made I think he might have made birdie on 14, 15 and 16. Then we made double on 17 and lost to Goosen by two. And I remember getting in my car as I left and then I had all these messages on my, on my phone. And the first one was from Joe LaCava who caddied for Fred at the time. And now caddies for tiger. 
and he, he left his message and said, you know, no matter what you do, don't ever watch a replay of the golf today. And that was just basically him saying, you know, on greens that ultimately died that day. And I think they were dead a year later. You know, you know, it's tough, you know, when you're playing on hard baked out greens and, you know, guys making 30 footers on, on greens where it's hard to make a five footer, you know, and, and it, he just played incredibly well and it just didn't work out. So those, you know, that, that loss was much tougher than Wingfoot. But again, he, he, he I know he feels really good about Shinnecock. So, uh, and, and what was the other one that you mentioned right before or after it? Pebble is 19 and then Wingfoot oh, is yeah. 20. Yeah, well, he loves Pebble. I mean, he's won there three or four times. He had a chance to win there in 2010. So that's good mojo, too. So I look forward to both of those. And if I remember right, Shinnecock in 04, that was the year that things really got out of control, right? Where they were watering the greens in between groups. And uh, I think the ninth green or one, one of the greens just got completely messed up and there was guys putting it off the green. Am I remembering that right? That's 100% right. We got on a par three on the front nine, I think. I think it might be about seven or eight. And Phil and I were talking on the tee. And we were like, the only possible way we can make par on this hole is to intentionally miss the green in regulation. Hmm. So he, I remember he had an eight iron, and the goal was to hit it in this one left bunker. And then you would possibly have this angle on a bunker shot that was uphill. And he hit this incredible eight iron right in the middle of the bunker. It didn't bury. hit this incredible bunker shot to three or four feet, and I think made it for three. And we picked up, you know, whatever, a shot on the field because I think it was just a disaster. And it was just, it was that week when, we were going in there to sign our. The guys were going in there to sign the cards, and they were have they were having like the head USJ guy was in there apologizing to everybody for what had happened and you know the condition of the greens and all that stuff. It just it just completely got away from them. What do you uh, a What do you think, and what do you think Phil thinks about the way U.S. Open courses are treated now? I think I personally think there's been progress towards making things a little bit. Uh, better test, graduated rough, and certain things. But um, and I, th- I think the players are recognizing it as, as the setups have been better. I mean, I'm sure there's still plenty of people that do not like the way USGA, the USGA sets up golf courses. But what do you think about the trend in, in the courses they're using, how they set them up, and how does Phil feel about it? You know, I, I, can't, re- I can't really speak for Phil because, you know, obviously it's a, it's a fairly sensitive subject sure. given what he does. But, um, you know, I, I think that it's certainly gotten better. Um, but, but then again, I mean, when you have situations, you know, like last year at Oakmont and and what went on with Dustin on that green and that ridiculous ruling, I mean, as you know, from probably going there, you just can't have greens with that kind of pitch at that kind of speed. And, uh, and and I think that, you know, as, as long as that goes on, you're kind of asking for trouble, but, but, but then again, to your point, I mean, I remember in 2001 at, uh, Oak, excuse me, at uh, the course in Tulsa, Southern Hills, that if you, the 18th green at Southern Hills is absolutely huge. And if you stood in the middle of that green and dropped the ball from three or four feet above the ground, the ball would land on the green, roll off the green, and roll 60 yards down this hill. Ugh. And I remember at the time the guy setting up the golf tournament saying, well, that's okay. We just won't cut this green as low as the other 17." And the players were like, but this is the U.S. Open, you know what I mean? And, and that was the green ultimately on Sunday where you had the short miss from Stuart Sink, I think, and, and Retief Goosen, you know, missing it from a foot and a half to win the tournament. And it was just chaos on that green because, in my opinion, USJ had got the, the setup completely wrong and guys were completely psyched out on that green. But it's definitely better. But, uh, you know, <laughs> I, think, I think it can get better still. 
<clears throat> I, I was reading a little bit, or maybe I heard you on another podcast talk a bit about uh, how you chart golf courses, and I found it pretty very interesting. I think a, a quote I re- heard from you say is like, after playing hole 16 at Augusta over the years, you play that hole eight yards shorter or something like that. Uh, how much of that of your like knowledge at this point in your career, 20 plus years in, can you rely on prior experience and are your Tuesdays and Wednesdays a little easier charting courses uh, than, they, than they were 10, 20 years ago? Yeah, yeah, you, you know, we, especially now, you know, you, you go these these major courses are on these rotations, obviously, and you know, every several years you go back and you have all these notes and all this, you know, knowledge from the previous tournament. So yeah, it definitely gets a little easier in terms of what you acquire. And you know, Phil's gotten to the point now where he's done so much coursework on these uh, on these courses that you know we didn't like say at Mirfield in 2013 have to go there and you know, in a sense, break the course down hole by hole and. You know, the week ended up being, you know, easier in terms of, you know, prior to and a week that he ended up winning. Um, but uh, but you're right. I, I mean, what I find, especially at Augusta, that, that you referenced is that you have these little theories about holes. And, yeah, you know, that was always our little secret. And I think then Phil mentioned it once in an interview about how if you go back and you watch the history of the Masters and guys playing 16 the number of times you see guys posing over shots on 16 and the ball coming down 25, 30 feet behind the hole, which is probably the hardest putt at Augusta National behind the hole on 16 on Sunday. So, you know, I don't know why it is. It's a very low spot on the golf course. There's 20,000 patrons, it seems, sitting around, and maybe there's just not much oxygen there. I don't know. But the ball just seems to just take off off the club there, especially as compared to the other 17 holes. So, it was it was kind of it was kind of crazy, but in two thousand and four, we had talked about this and never put it into play. And when Phil, you know, was chasing down Ernie in two thousand and four, at least trying to, as he walked off a of fifteen green, he just made kind of a disappointing par. And we he Phil needed still needed to make a birdie to uh, to tie Ernie for the lead, who was close to finishing. We walked to the sixteenth tee there from fifteen green, and we were like, okay, let's plug this thing in there. And we got there, and it was a flat out seven iron yardage. And he just decided we just, he, you know, he hit eight, 15 feet underneath the hole and made two. And, you know, that certainly helped. Uh, no matter how many times you rewatch that 2004 Masters, it never gets old. I mean, it really is pretty storybooked for when that first Masters, was it 31 on the back 90 shot? It was. Yeah. Yes, it was. Yeah. He, what, he birdied uh, five of the last seven, I believe. Yes. Yeah, it was, a, it, it was cool. Thanks. Epic. Um, so Augusta's very famous for all making a lot of tinkering a lot of changes to the golf course i know phil likes to go there at least uh, once or twice maybe before the masters i'm curious do do players get notified about what changes are made or do you guys show up there and are you like oh well this bunker is a little bit different or this hills change is it kind of secretive or do they do they inform the players when they make changes to the golf course uh from from what i've seen i think it's a little bit of both i mean i know that I, if I'm not mistaken, I think they've told the guys at times that they redo like a couple of greens a year just to keep them fresh. Mm-hmm. And of course, they put them back together just you know exactly as they were. I mean, that place is amazing. I mean, it's such a great tournament and it's so well run the way the way they do things. But there's no question that 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 you will definitely notice things that aren't necessarily official, like you know the first tee just continually creeping back <laughs> towards the putting green or the, you know, I know you hear stories like, I think it was Charles Cootie who used to talk about how when he first started playing the Masters, you would walk straight out of the, the, the pro shop door and there where the first tee would be. Well, now you'd have to turn left and go a hundred yards left to, to get to it. So, 
there's there's definitely been some. I remember one year left at the 13th green. There's that little shallowed out area left of 13, and, and it wasn't nearly as shallow as it had been previously. And I don't think that was kind of like officially kind of put out there. But you know what? That tournament, those guys, as far as I'm concerned, those guys can do whatever they want because they do it so well. They run such an amazing tournament, and it's just such a pleasure to be there. That's what I was going to say. Is it's amazing how much they do make changes, and there's never an issue. Like there just never is. Just the issues you cited with the U.S. Open. Obviously, they don't have the same continuity in the golf course, and don't know the courses as well when they make the changes. But it is amazing how they can just you know make a change year over year, and people don't even notice it for the most part. But when you're at the Masters, when you're at Augusta. Um, how much do you think, like let's say it's a Sunday afternoon round, it's typically the same pin positions for the most part on Sunday. If he's got a putt, you know, like an 8-foot putt, 12-foot putt, are you ever thinking like, well, in 2010, I remember this, he missed this low. Is it, it, people say like you remember the break in the greens at Augusta more than you read them. Is that something you practically apply? Uh, yeah, and unfortunately for me, I, I work for a guy that's completely plugged into that, and I think that's mm-hmm. part of the reason he's had success there and a, a part of the reason why Tiger's had the success there that he's had because they have these memories where they just get locked in and they absolutely remember it. And, and you know, referencing back to, to 04 Masters, Phil made this critical two on 12, and I do remember him telling me, you know, as we were walking to 13T, he was like, man, I've missed that putt low and I've missed that putt high. So I figured I absolutely knew what the break was this time, and he made it. And I think it might have made the same putt in 06 when he went on to win. So you're 100% right. And getting back to what you were talking about, about Augusta and the way those guys do things, a quick story about that is very early in Phil's career, uh, we were playing, playing, playing the first round of the Masters, and we got to the second tee, and, you know, and everything's put in the same spot. Everything's right where it should be. And – the guys that put out the water fountains or the water jug, if you will, we get a little clip of water out there, had put it on the tee box, not thinking about guys being left-handed hitting off the tee. Hmm. So you could literally, you could, you know, fill the tee up his ball and take a swing and hit the water jug. And so two or three times that day, we had to move water jugs because they, you know, just, just it had slipped past this one guy. And the next day, I was out walking pins. You know, at the golf course, and there's 40,000 people out there. Phil had an afternoon time, and I'm in amongst these people, and I certainly don't have my caddy outfit on. And I'm walking up, you know, back to the clubhouse, and I'm a half a mile away down there by, I don't know, Seven Green or something like that. And this man comes over to me, and he's like the water jug guy. <laughs> he's the guy that put it out. And, you know, somehow they, you know, they know you're out there. You know what I mean? They, you know, it's amazing. They, they know everything that's going on at Augusta. And he came out and apologized to me. And it's just amazing how professional those guys are and how seriously they take their tournament. That's the only, that's the only defense the course has against the left-handed domination that's happened <laughs> over the last few years. <laughs> Um, what I've, I've heard you give a couple examples in the past, or at least one example in the past, but I'm curious as to, uh, if you could think back to a situation where you felt, uh, maybe, maybe a regret you have, or felt like you, you did something along the way that you, that cost Phil that you look back at and said, man, I had that one wrong. Yeah, definitely. Uh, 99 us open against yeah. Payne Stewart. Um, you know, it was just, it was such an amazing day, you know, at that golf course, you know, such a great golf course. And then we started having this kind of really kind of awesome weather and it started misting you know what i mean it was almost like they were playing in scotland and Payne made this uh incredible like 25 30 footer for par on uh, 16 to take a one shot lead and then he stiffed it on on 17 with the honor hit it to five or six feet and phil hit it to 10 feet 
And uh, Phil asked me to read the putt, and you know, to this day, I regret the read that I gave him. I mean, I I, I thought it was a straight putt, and you know, looking at it, it there at the time and on TV after the fact, the ball, the ball definitely broke right and missed right, and of course, Payne, you know, makes the putt on the last hole to beat Phil by one, and and uh, you know, there's no question by a hundred miles if I could change one thing over the course of my caddy career, that, you know, in terms of input that I gave Phil, it would be that. Yeah. All right. We won't dwell on the on the on the regrets any longer. Then, but no uh, what would you say uh, in your whole career? What do you, what would you say you're most proud of? Um. Jeez. Um. <laughs> I'm not. A, I'm not a kind of like. I, I. I. I don't ever want to be like a pat myself on the back guy. So, you know. I don't know. I'm. I'm proud of the job I've done for Phil. That's. That's probably. You know the best way to do it. I mean, I think that, you know, you, you kind of judge yourself by, you know, what kind of job did you do for the guy when there was a lot on the line? You know what I mean? And, and, you know, it, it's, it's, if, if, if you're, you know, in 56th place and, you know, you're hitting a seven iron into the 18th green, you know, it's, you know, there's not a lot of heat on, you know, in, in terms of at that times, but, you know, I just hope that when Phil's done and he thinks back to those days where, you know, he won his majors and, and, and things were really were important that, that he's happy with the job I did in terms of the advice I gave him. Have you ever seen Phil play any better than he did at the 2016 Open Championship? Uh, I, I don't think I have. I mean, um, I'm still trying to process that whole week, you know. It, you know, it, at the time when it was happening and when it ended, you know, we were, I was, you know, very happy for Henrik and his caddy, uh, Lordy, who's a tremendous guy too. And, and he deserved it. And he played his, 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 he played unbelievable, obviously. But in the days that followed you, it's just like, man, you know, how, how, how did Phil not win? And you, you kind of pick it apart and all that stuff. And, it, you know, it, it was just amazing, amazing golf. And, and I was, it was amazing the reaction that it got from people, and I was blown away by like the comments of Jack Nicholas after the fact, suggesting that possibly it was as good or better than their duel in the sun with Watson in '77. So it, it was it was really cool to be out there. Um, I, I got to tell you a quick story about that. So those guys are playing, and it's and it's just getting crazier and crazier and just in terms of you know how big it is out there and the, and, and the reactions of, of, of the crowds and all that stuff and uh and so they i think phil picks up a shot on 11 and uh and then makes a 25 30 footer for par on 12 which was just this huge momentum saver for us and, and the place is just going bananas and so we get to the 13th tee there and 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 uh Henrik and Phil both drive off the tee, and everybody walks off the tee, and I'm the last guy off the tee, and I'm walking off, and this guy goes, excuse me, excuse me, and it's the walking official with the RNA, and uh, he says to me as, as, as we're walking off the tee, he goes, will you please run up there and let those guys, let the guys know that they need to catch up with the group in front of them, <laughs> and I thought to myself, are you kidding me right now? I mean, these guys are putting on the show of shows. <laughs> out there the whole world's watching this i think and and you want me to run up there and tell these guys 
that, that you've got a problem with what's going on out here? I said, no, I'm not going to, and, or words to that effect. And, uh, and then we left the whole thing alone. But I just thought to myself in the wake of the whole thing at the U.S. at the US Open just a couple of weeks before, I thought to myself, boy, these guys just can't leave well enough alone sometimes. There's no one behind you either. It's not like you're There's holding no up the course. You. Right. Everybody's on the edge of their seats. I mean, it is just, it's like a rock concert out there at the golf tournament. I mean, I thought to myself, now, why would you intrude on this? Yeah. If, I don't know if this makes you feel better or worse about it, but a friend of mine, Jake Nichols, who's a very uh, incredible statistician, uh, and I don't know the, the formulas they used to come up with this, but he said that Phil that Phil's performance at the Open Championship this year was the fifth greatest performance, basically in relation to the field, in major championship history. Wow. And Henrik Stenson's was second only to Tiger's 2000 U.S. Open. Oh, no kidding. That's fascinating. That's very interesting. Yeah, it makes total sense. Well, that's cool. If I'm able to get the get the article or how how he did how he came up with that, I'll send it over to you. But yeah, I don't know yeah. if that I don't know if that helps or hurts. I, just, I don't I don't know how to ask a question about that either. I just I'm so curious as to how Phil views that tournament, knowing that he couldn't have done realistically couldn't have done any better and to still lose. I don't know how you come to grips with that or come to terms with that. Is he is he able to move on to, for something like that or does it does it stick with him? Well, the saving grace is that he'd won it. You know what I mean? Yeah. If Phil had never won the Open Championship and that had happened this year, I mean, I can't speak for Phil, but I'd be out on a ledge. You know what I mean? I mean it, it, it would be a brutal thing to deal with because I was in denial. That's kind of why I got emotional in 2013 when he won because I was in denial about how big and important that tournament is. And, you know, Phil hadn't had all that much success. And it, it's just such an amazing week. And it's I'm always... You know, we, we, we caddy on, on the greatest tour in the world over here on the PGA Tour. It's amazing, and I, I, I would, wouldn't change a thing about it. But there, there's, you know, the Open Championship, you know, is a pretty darn special event. And to go over there, is, you, know, is, you know, especially when it's in Scotland. And uh, it, it's, it's just amazing. And, and, and uh, yeah, I'm so, I'm so grateful that Phil had won it because otherwise it would have made this year incredibly tough to deal with. Yeah, it's it's remarkable considering the early lack of success in his career at the Open, how it's viewed by many as his best chance to win majors these days. So it's it's amazing how his transition into that. But a few more questions and I'll let you go. I'm taking up a lot of your time and it's much appreciated. But I'm just curious what your thoughts are on what what's something that goes into caddying that most people, most fans outside the rubs don't recognize or don't realize that you got to do every week or something that's way harder than it looks. Mm, um. Wow. Uh, I, <laughs> I would say certainly, you know, any caddy worth her salt is going to be out there walking the course, you know, once or twice. So you're looking at the golf course before you see your player. Uh, another thing that you that people might be surprised about is how much the weather um, plays into club selection. Um, it's just crazy. These guys are they hit the ball so hard and so flush that the sun going behind the clouds and the temperature going from 75 to 65 can significantly affect your club selection. Um, one year at Tucson, Phil had to make par on the last hole at Tucson National. Uh, very early in his career to win the tournament, you know, it was a, you know, very, you know, you're trying to just stack up as many wins as you can. It was probably something like 94, 95. And he drove it in the fairway on the last hole, and there was a ruling up on the 18th green with the group in front of us. And we, he had something like, you know, 203 yards and you're, you know, you're in the desert, so the ball goes forever, and it's 75 degrees. And as this ruling was taking place, uh, the sun went behind the mountains because it was late in the afternoon, and the temperature dropped significantly. And I remember he hit four iron on the front edge of the green and two putted to win the tournament. So that, that kind of shows you how much 
with those guys, you know, just the weather can affect things. So I would say that would probably be the, the thing that would surprise people the most. Yeah, well, I didn't realize it was it was at that much depth. But what's in a, what event out there treats the caddies the best? Ah, great question. Let's see. Um, well, the Masters is up there. Charlotte's tremendous. Um, and I, I don't want to leave anybody out, but, you know, it's really gotten, you know, quite good here of late um in terms of parking and food and stuff like that and guys are really aware and uh i gotta say that i think the guy that just took out jay monahan who's the new commissioner of the tour things are only going to get better he's i don't know if you ever had a conversation with a guy but he's an amazingly impressive guy and uh i just i think uh everything on the tour is going to get better moving forward as, as jay kind of runs the show very good uh, five years ago, you told Golf.com you don't see Phil playing on the Senior Tour. I'm sure it's a question you get a lot. He's now four years away from being eligible. Has anything changed there? <laughs> um, I, I might, I might hedge on that a little bit, just because you know Phil. Uh, Phil's very, very competitive, uh, and, and that's certainly part of what he what makes him successful. And you know, I, I think that. You know he's going to want that competition, and 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 listen the way the way he's thinking and the way he's playing, and the fact that he's, you know, I think a lifetime member of the tour because he's got over twenty victories or or something like that, or he's exempt for life. You know that he can he can continue to play as long as he wants to play. Um, you know I think that you know if if there was a U.S. Senior Open at a really cool course, I, I, I might I might hedge a little bit and say I could possibly see him playing that event, but. Uh, but uh, yeah, he's going to be playing somewhere. So you, but you think he's going to be pegging you on the PGA Tour well into his fifties? Then I do. I definitely do. I think you know his health. Knock on wood. You know, seems you know for the most part has been really good throughout his career. And and uh, yeah, I, I you know I just think that he 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 wants to compete and and you know he wants to compete against the best and you know uh, I, I, I he, he's going to be out there for a while. All right, last one. This may be a tough one to end on, but uh, if you're to think back to one moment, shot, conversation, anything that best defines the relationship between you and Phil, what what's the first thing that comes to mind? It would be the shot out of the trees on 13 at Augusta okay. at the 2010 Masters. Um, just you know, I mean that story has been told you know a, a lot, and I don't know if you want to hear it or you don't, but you know um, he, you know the thing about Phil is. He's one of those guys that when he's out there on Sunday at a tournament that he's that he's contending in, he can tell you verbatim every single name on the scoreboard, what what hole they're on, and how many under par there are. He, he he's just going to basically memorize it. And that week was all about chasing, chasing, chasing. Because you know, even with the, th- the he made two eagles on Saturday on thirteen and fourteen, and then almost eagle fifteen, and to try and catch, I think at the time Westwood, and you're just trying to you're just trying to get out in front. Phil wants to lead, obviously. And uh, I think everybody does. And, you know, we got there. He, he hit that ball into the trees up on 13. And, you know, if you look at that shot on television, the trees, it looks like there's a decent gap in the two trees. But, but TV didn't do that, that shot justice in that the trees were quite – the two trees he was going between were quite a ways apart. I think they were like 8 or 10 feet apart, which made the gap much smaller. I think it was about the width of a box of a dozen balls. And – um you know, and I got up there and I gave him the yards. He had something like 204 yards, and I just felt sure he was going to tell me that he was going to go for it in two. 
so I asked, and he said, yeah, I'm definitely going there. You know, what club do you like? Yeah, and um, so I told him, you know, we were discussing five or six iron. I told him I thought, I, I, you know, I liked hard six. He liked hard six also. And then as a caddy, you're kind of just taking your player's temperature. You know, is he 80% in? Is he 100% in? And so I was trying to think a little bit about how I could go back at him in terms of, you know, how is he really feeling here? And up in front of us, K.J. Choi missed a six-footer. And as a result of missing that putt, it was the first time I think Phil led the whole week. I think actually he became tied for the lead there because we kind of heard a murmur in the crowd, and I asked one of the cameramen. And so I went back to Phil, and I said, hey, man, I said, here's the deal. I don't change what you, what you, what you want to do, but you're now leading, you know, do you, do you want to maybe pitch this out given you know the fact you're the best wedge player on the tour? you got a great chance of making four. And he said to me, listen, he said, um, at some point today, I'm going to have to hit a really great shot under a lot of pressure. I'm going to do it right now, which was A, what he was going to do, but it was also my, my, my signal to get the heck out of the way and let him hit this shot. And he did, and it was you know arguably the most famous shot he'll ever hit in his life. And, and it was awesome, but it, it, to me it kind of just encapsulates – you know, the kind of confidence that he plays with, you know, he plays aggressively. He's always, you know, said he would do that and he's done that. It's been, you know, an incredibly, you know, fun 25 years for me watching this guy kind of apply his trade. And I was just kind of grateful to be there at that moment and throughout his whole career. I can think of no better way to wrap up the No Laying Up podcast than with that that story right there. So with that, I'm going to let you go, Bones. Thank you so much for spending an hour of your time. Best of luck with your rehab. Get the, get the golf clubs out. Hopefully there's not too much dust on them. And I'd love to do this again sometime. This was an absolute blast. No, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, congratulations on all your success. And uh, hope you have a great holidays. Thanks. You too, Bones. Okay. Bye-bye. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah! Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! 